Chapter Five of Mr. Scarbo's Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Scarborough's Family by Anthony Trollope. Augustus Scarborough. Harry Ainsley, when he found himself in London, could not for a moment shake off that feeling of nervous anxiety as to the fate of Mountjoy Scarborough, which had seized hold of him. In every newspaper which he took in his hand, he looked first for the paragraph respecting the fate of the missing man, which paper was sure to contain in one of its columns. It was his habit during these few days to breakfast at a club, and he could not abstain from speaking to his neighbors about the wonderful Scarborough incident. Every man was at this time willing to speak on the subject, and Harry's interest might not have seemed to be peculiar, but it became known that he had been acquainted with the missing man, and Harry, in conversation, said much more than it would have been prudent for him to do on the understanding that he wished to remain unconnected with the story. Men asked him questions, as though he were likely to know, and he would answer them, asserting that he knew nothing, but still leaving an impression behind that he did no more than he chose to avow. Many inquiries were made daily, at this time in Scotland Yard, as to the captain. These, no doubt, chiefly came from the creditors and their allies. But Harry Ainsley became known among those who asked for information as Harry Ainsley, Esquire, late of St. John's College, Cambridge, and even the police were taught to think that there was something noticeable in the interest which he displayed. On the fourth day after his arrival in London, just at that time of year when everybody was supposed to be leaving town, and when faded members of Parliament, who allowed themselves to be retained for the purpose of final divisions, were cursing their fate amid the heats of August, Harry accepted an invitation to dine with Augustus Scarborough at his chambers in the temple. He understood when he accepted the invitation that no one else was to be there, and must have been aware that it was the intention of the heir of Trenton to talk to him respecting his brother. He had not seen Scarborough since he had been up in town, and he had not been desirous of seeing him, but when the invitation came, he had told himself that it would be better that he should accept it, and that he would allow his host to say what he pleased to say on the subject, he himself remaining recitant. But poor Harry little knew the difficulty of recitancy when the heart is full. He had intended to be very recitant when he came up to London, and had, in fact, done nothing but talk about the missing man, as to whom he had declared that he would altogether hold his tongue. The reader must here be pleased to remember that Augustus Scarborough was perfectly well aware of what had befallen his brother, and must therefore have known, among other things, of the quarrel which had taken place in the streets. He knew, therefore, that Harry was concealing his knowledge, and could make a fair guess at the state of the poor fellow's mind. He will guess, he said to himself, that he did not leave him for dead on the ground, or the body would be there to tell the tale. But he must be ashamed of the part which he took in the street fight, 
and be anxious to conceal it. No doubt Mountjoy was the first offender, but something had occurred which Annesley is unwilling should make its way either to his uncle's ears, or to his father's, or to mine, or to the squire's, or to those of Florence. It was thus that Augustus Scarborough reasoned with himself when he asked Harry Annesley to dine with him. It was not supposed by any of his friends that Augustus Scarborough would continue to live in the moderate chambers which he now occupied in the temple. But he had, as yet, made no sign of a desire to leave them. They were up two pair of stairs, and were not great in size, but they were comfortable enough, even luxurious, as a bachelor's abode. "'I asked you to come alone,' said Augustus, "'because there is such a crowd of things to be talked of about poor Mountjoy, which are not exactly fitted for the common ear.' "'Yes, indeed,' said Harry, who did not, however, quite understand why it would be necessary that the heir should discuss with him the affairs of his unfortunate brother. There had, no doubt, been a certain degree of intimacy between them, but nothing which made it essential that the captain's difficulties should be exposed to him. The matter which touched him most closely was the love which both the men had borne to Florence Mountjoy. But Harry did not expect that any allusion to Florence would be made on the present occasion. Did you ever hear of such a devil of a mess? said Augustus. No, indeed. It is not only that he has disappeared. That is as nothing when compared with all the other incidents of this romantic tale. Indeed, it is the only natural thing in it. Given all the other circumstances, I should have foretold his disappearance as a thing certain to occur. Why shouldn't such a man disappear, if he can? But how has he done it? replied Harry. Where has he gone to? At this moment, where is he? Ah, if you will answer all those questions, and give your information in Scotland Yard, the creditors, no doubt, will make up a handsome purse for you. Not that they will ever get a shilling from him, though he were to be seen walking down St. James Street tomorrow. But they are a sanguine gentry, these holders of bills and I really believe that if they could see him, they would embrace him with the warmest affection. In the meantime, let us have some dinner, and we will talk about poor Mountjoy when we have got rid of young Pitcher. Young Pitcher is my laundress's son, to the use of whose services I have been promoted since I have been known to be the heir of Tretton. They sat down and dined, and Augustus Scarborough made himself agreeable. The small dinner was excellent of its kind, and the wine was all that it ought to be. During dinner not a word was said as to Mountjoy, nor as to the affairs of the estate. Augustus, who was old for his age, and had already practiced himself much in London life, knew well how to make himself agreeable. There was plenty to be said while young Pitcher was passing in and out of the room, so that there appeared no awkward vacancies of silence when one course succeeded the other. The weather was very hot. The grouse were very tempting. Everybody was very dull. And members of Parliament more stupid than anybody else. But a good time was coming. Would Harry come down to Treton and see the old governor? There was not much to offer him in a way of recreation. But when September came, 
the partridges would abound. Harry gave a half-promise that he would go to Trenton for a week, and Augustus Scarborough expressed himself as much gratified. Harry, at the moment, thought of no reason why he should not go to Trenton, and thus committed himself to the promise, but he afterward felt that Trenton was of all places the last which he ought just at the present to visit. The last pitcher and the cheese were gone, and young Scarborough produced his cigars. "'I want to smoke directly I've done eating,' he said. "'Drinking goes with smoking, as well as it does with eating. So there need be no stop for that. Now tell me, Ainsley, what is it that you think about Mountjoy?' There was an abruptness in the question, which for the moment struck Harry dumb. How was he to say what he thought about Mountjoy Scarborough, even though he should have no feeling to prevent him from expressing the truth? He knew, or thought he knew, Mountjoy Scarborough to be a thorough blackguard, one whom no sense of honesty kept from spending money, and who was now a party to robbing his creditors without the slightest compunction. For it was in Harry's mind that Mountjoy and his father were in league together to save the property by rescuing it from the hands of the Jews. He would have thought the same as to the old squire, only that the old squire had not interfered with him in reference to Florence Mountjoy. And then there was present to his mind the brutal attack which had been made on himself in the street. According to his views, Mountjoy Scarborough was certainly a blackguard, but he did not feel inclined quite to say so to the brother, nor was he perfectly certain as to his host's honesty. It might be that the three Scarboroughs were all in a league together, and if so, he had done very wrong, as he then remembered, to say that he would go down to Tretton. When, therefore, he was asked the question, he could only hold his tongue. I suppose you have some scruple in speaking, because he's my brother. You may drop that altogether. I think that his career has been what a novel reader would call romantic, but what I, whom not one of them, should describe as unfortunate. Well, yes, taking it altogether, it has been unfortunate. I am not a soft-hearted fellow, but I am driven to pity him. The worst of it is that, had not my father been induced at last to tell the truth, from most dishonest causes, he would not have been a bit better off than he is. I doubt whether he could have raised another couple of thousand on the day when he went. If he had done so, and again more and more, to any amount you choose to think of, it would have been the same with him. I suppose so. His lust for gambling was a bottomless quicksand, which no possible amount of winning could ever have satiated. Let him enter his club with five thousand pounds at his banker's, and no misfortune could touch him, he being such as he is, or, alas, for aught we know, such as he was. The escape which the property has had cannot but be regarded as very fortunate. I don't care to talk much of myself in particular, though no wrong can have been done to a man more infinite than that which my father contrived for me. I cannot understand your father, said Harry. In truth, there was something in Scarborough's manner in speaking of his father, 
which almost produced belief in Harry's mind. He began to doubt whether Augustus was in the conspiracy. No, I should say not. It is hard to understand that an English gentleman should have the courage to conceive such a plot, and the wit to carry it out. If Mountjoy had run only decently straight, or not more than indecently crooked, I should have been a younger brother, practicing law in the temple to the end of my days. The story of Esau and Jacob is as nothing to it. But that is not the most remarkable circumstance. My father, for purposes of his own, which includes the absolute throwing over of Mountjoy's creditors, changes his plan, and is pleased to restore to me that which he had resolved to rob me. What father would dare to look in the face of the son whom he had thus resolved to defraud? My father tells me the story with a gentle chuckle, showing almost as much indifference to Mountjoy's ruin as to my recovered prosperity. He has not a blush when he reveals it all. He has not a word to say, or, as far as I can see, a thought as to the world's opinion. No doubt he is supposed to be dying. I do presume that three or four months will see the end of him. In the meantime, he takes it all as quietly, as though he had simply lent a five-pound note to Mountjoy out of my pocket. You, at any rate, will get your property. Oh, yes, and that, no doubt, is his argument when he sees me. He is delighted to have me down at Tretton, and, to tell the truth, I do not feel the slightest animosity toward him. But as I look at him, I think him to be the most remarkable old gentleman that the world has ever produced. He is quite unconscious that I have any ground of complaint against him. He has probably thought that the circumstances of your brother's birth should not mitigate against his prospects. But the law, my dear fellow, said Scarborough, getting up from his chair and standing with his cigar between his finger and thumb, the law thinks otherwise. The making of all right and wrong in this world depends on the law. The half-crown in my pocket is merely mine because of the law. He did choose to marry my mother before I was born, but he did not choose to go through that ceremony before my brother's time. That may be a trifle to you, or to my moral feelings may be a trifle. But because of that trifle, all Tretton will be my property, and his attempt to rob me of it was just the same as though he should break into a bank and steal what he found there. He knows that just as well as I do, but to suit his own purposes he did it. There was something in the way in which the young man spoke both of his father and mother which made Harry's flesh creep. He could not but think of his own father and his own mother and his feelings in regard to them. But here this man was talking of the misdoings of the one parent and the other with the most perfect sanvois. Of course I understand all that, said Harry. There is a manner of doing evil so easy and indifferent as absolutely to quell the general feeling respecting it. A man shall tell you that he has committed a murder in a tone so careless as to make you feel that a murder is nothing. I don't suppose my father can be punished for his attempt to rob me of twenty thousand a year, and therefore he talks to me about it as though it were a good joke. Not only that, but he expects me to receive it in the same way. 
Upon the whole, he prevails. I find myself not in the least angry with him, and rather obliged to him than otherwise for allowing me to be his eldest son. What must Mountjoy's feeling be, said Harry? Exactly. What must be Mountjoy's feelings? There is no need to consider my father's, but poor Mountjoy's. I don't suppose that he can be dead. I should think not. While a man is alive, he can carry himself off. But when a fellow is dead, it requires at least one or probably two to carry him. Men do not wish to undertake such a work secretly unless they have been concerned in the murder. And then there will have been a noise which must have been heard, or blood which must have been seen, and the body will at last be forthcoming, or some sign of its destruction. I do not think he be dead. I should hope not, said Harry, rather tamely, and feeling that he was guilty of a falsehood by the manner in which he expressed his hope. When was it you saw him last? Scarborough asked the question, with an abruptness which was predetermined, but which did not quite take Harry aback. About three months since, in London, said Harry, going back in his memory to the last meeting, which had occurred before the squire had declared his purpose. Ah, you haven't seen him, then, since he knew that he was nobody. This, he asked, in an indifferent tone, being anxious not to discover his purpose, but in doing so, he gave Harry great credit for his readiness of mind. I have not seen him since he heard the news which must have astonished him more than anyone else. I wonder, said Augustus, how Florence Mountjoy has borne it. Neither have I seen her. I have been at Cheltenham, but was not allowed to see her. This he said with an assertion to himself, that though he had lied to one particular, he would not lie as to any other. I suppose she must have been much cut up by it all. I have half a mind to declare to myself that she shall still have the opportunity of becoming the mistress of Trenton. She was always afraid of Mountjoy, but I do not know that she ever loved him. She had become so used to the idea of marrying him that she would have given herself up in mere obedience. I too think she might do as a wife, and I shall certainly make a better husband than Mountjoy would have done. Miss Mountjoy will certainly do as a wife for anyone who may be lucky enough to get her, said Harry, with a certain tone of magnificence, which at the moment he felt to be overstrained and ridiculous. Oh, yes, one has got to get her, as you call it, of course. You mean to say that you are supposed to be in the running? That is your own lookout. I can only allege on my own behalf that it has always been considered be an old family arrangement that Florence Mountjoy should marry the heir to Trenton Park. I am in that position now, and I only throw it out as a hint that I may feel disposed to follow out the family arrangement. Of course, if other things come in the way, there will be an end of it. Come in. This last invitation was given in consequence of a knock at the door. The door was opened and there entered a policeman in plain clothes named Prodgers, who seemed from his manner to be well acquainted with Augustus Scarborough. The police for some time past had been very busy on the track of Mountjoy Scarborough, but had not hitherto succeeded 
in obtaining any information. Such activity as had been displayed cannot be procured without expense, and it had been understood in this case that old Mr. Scarborough had refused to furnish the means. Something he had supplied at first, but had later declined even to subscribe to a fund. He was not at all desirous, he said, that his son should be brought back to the world, particularly as he had made it evident by his disappearance that he was anxious to keep out of the way. Why should I pay the fellows? It's no business of mine, he had said to his son. And from that moment he had declined to do more than make up the first subscription which had been suggested to him. But the police had been kept very busy, and it was known that the funds had been supplied chiefly by Mr. Tyrit. He was a resolute and persistent man, and was determined to run down Mountjoy Scarborough, as he called it, if money would enable him to do so. It was he who had appealed to the squire for assistance in this object, and to him the squire had expressed his opinion that, as his son did not seem anxious to be brought back, he should not interfere in the matter. "'Well, Prodgers, what news have you today?' asked Augustus. "'There is a man a-wandering about down in sky, just here and there, with nothing in particular to say for himself. "'What sort of a looking fellow is he?' "'Well, he's light, and don't come up to the captain's marks, but there's no knowing what disguises a fellow will put on. I don't think he's got the captain's legs, and a man can't change his legs. Captain Scarborough would not remain loitering about in sky where he would be known by half the autumn tourists who saw him. That's just what I was saying to Wilkinson, said Prodgers. Wilkinson seems to think that a man may be anybody as long as nobody knows who he is. That ain't the captain, said I. I'm afraid he's got out of England, said the captain's brother. There's no place where he can be run down like New York or Paris or Melbourne, and it's them they mostly go to. We've wired all three, and a dozen other ports of the kind. We catches them mostly, if they go abroad, but when they remain at home, they're uncommon troublesome. There was a man wandering about in County Donegal. We call Ireland at home, because we've so much to do with their police since the Land League came up, but this chap was only an artist who couldn't pay his bills. What do you think about it, Mr. Ainsley? said the policeman, turning short round upon Harry and addressing him a question. Why should the policeman even have known his name? Who, I? I don't think about it at all. I have no means of thinking about it. Because you have been so busy down there at the yard, I thought that, as you was asking so many questions, you was, perhaps, interested in the matter. My friend Mr. Ainsley, said Augustus, was acquainted with Captain Scarborough, as he is with me. It did seem as though he was more than usually interested, all the same, said the policeman. I am more than usually interested, replied Harry, but I do not know that I am going to give you my reason. As to his present existence, I know absolutely nothing. I dare say not. If you had any information as was reliable, I dare say as it would be forthcoming. Well, Mr. Scarborough, you may be sure of this. If we can get upon his trail, we'll do so, and I think we shall. There isn't a port 
that hasn't been watched from two days after his disappearance, and there isn't a port as won't be watched as soon as any English steamer touches him. We've got our eyes out, and we means to use em. Good night, Mr. Scarborough. Good night, Mr. Ainsley. And he bobbed his head to our friend Harry. You say as there is a reason as is unknown. Perhaps it won't be unknown always. Good night, gentlemen. Then Constable Prodgers left the room. Harry had been disconcerted by the policeman's remarks and showed that it was so as soon as he was alone with Augustus Scarborough. I'm afraid you think that man intended to be impertinent, said Augustus. No doubt he did, but such men are allowed to be impertinent. He sees an enemy, of course, in every one who pretends to know more than he knows himself, or indeed, in every one who does not. You said something about having a reason of your own, and he at once connected you with Mountjoy's disappearance. Such creatures are necessary, but from the little I've seen of them, I do not think that they make the best companions in the world. I shall leave Mr. Prodgers to carry on with his business to the man who employs him, namely, Mr. Tyrit, and I advise you to do the same. Soon after that, Harry Ainsley took his leave, but he could not divest himself of an opinion that both the policeman and his host had thought that he had some knowledge respecting the missing man. Augustus Scarborough had said no word to that effect, but there had been a something in his manner which had excited suspicion in Harry's mind. And then Augustus had declared his purpose of offering his hand and fortune to Florence Mountjoy. He to be suitor to Florence, he, so soon after Mountjoy had been banished from the scene, and why should he have been told of it? He, whose love for the girl he could not but think that Augustus Scarborough had been aware. Then, much perturbed in his mind, he resolved, as he returned to his lodgings, that he would go down to Cheltenham on the following day. End of Chapter 5 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas